Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. I'd like to uh, welcome our viewers and our listeners to another in our series of interviews uh, with the experts. And I'm very uh, pleased today to, to have my uh, colleague, Dr. Juan Crestanello, who is the chair of cardiovascular surgery here at Mayo Clinic Rochester and a professor of uh, surgery. And he's here to discuss uh, you know, a very important uh, topic um, and, and one that uh, is a devastating cardiac disease, uh, particularly uh, found in, in, in younger patients uh, who've had uh, radiation therapy. So we're here to talk about radiation uh, uh, heart disease. So welcome, Juan. Thank you, Malcolm. You know, I, I think maybe just to, to set the scene here, uh, we, we know that radiation to the chest uh, is used for various uh, you know, tumors, and particularly the ones that we're concerned about are in that sort of mediastinal uh, area, so you know, breast cancer and lymphomas, lung cancer, et cetera. But as I said, just to set the scene, maybe you could just briefly outline what, what are the, uh, the most common manifestations of uh, uh, radiation heart disease? As you... Um probably say radiation heart disease is one of the most uh, devastating uh, cardiac conditions that we deal with. Patients who receive uh, radiation to the chest to treat uh, mediastinal malignancies, they have uh, all the mediastinal uh, structures affected. And particularly in terms of the heart, they, they develop pericarditis, constrictive pericarditis, they develop coronary artery disease, they develop a valvular heart disease, they develop the radiation affects the myocardium leading to non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and restricted uh, cardiomyopathy. They also develop a conduction abnormalities uh, as well as uh, calcifications of the ascending aorta and other vessels. In addition to that, the radiation not only affects the mediastinal structures, but also can affect the lungs, leading to pulmonary problems that increase the risk of the surgery. Before we get into the, to the details of you know, how you evaluate these patients, and in particular, how you treat them, in these patients, I mean, typically, what is the latency uh, between the radiation and the development of the cardiac consequences of that radiation. And does it happen in a particular order? I mean, is it coronary disease? Is it the myocardium, pericardium? What, what, what's your experience and observations of how it presents and when it presents? Uh, well, th that's a very good question. Uh, this, normally, there's a, a big latency between the uh, mediastinal radiation and the development of um, radiation-induced heart disease. It usually it is in the 20 to 30-year 30, uh, range. And now we're seeing patients who receive uh, radiations in the, in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. Uh, that those, uh, at that time, the techniques of uh, mediastinal radiation were not as sophisticated as they are now. They didn't use uh, targeted radiation isolating the, the heart from the radiation field. And they use much larger doses of radiation than, than, than what, they, than what is, it is used now. And it was very effective on, on treating malignancy, 
but led to a significant side effects in the in in the heart and this is slow a smoldering process that over 20 to 30 years or sometimes longer developed and led to lead to the radiation uh, heart disease. And in terms of uh, what's first, uh, normally the, the coronary artery disease is the, is the initial manifestation of, uh, of, of radiation heart disease and valvular heart disease and pericardial disease occurs a, at a later stage. So I think you made some important points there, particularly about uh, the increasing sophistication of delivering uh, you know, x-ray therapy uh, to these uh, patients with malignancy. And I suspect that, you know, it's probably fair to say that over the last few decades, it's been getting safer and safer. Uh, and hopefully in the future, you know, we'll, we'll see this, you know, these cardiac manifestations, you know, much uh, less frequently. But keeping that in mind, then, uh, are we seeing less radiation-induced cardiac disease today than we might have, you know, 10 or 15 years ago with respect to that? And then secondly, um, are there risk factors you know, of patients you know, who, even today, having radiation therapy, who might be at a higher risk of uh, having you know, cardiac uh, disease as a result of that treatment? I, I, the, the question in terms of the incidence, uh, the incidence and prevalence of radiation heart disease is, is really hard to answer uh, exactly because p- uh, patients are living longer and patients who had uh, radiation for treatment of their malignancy in the uh, 70s are, you know, most of them are still alive and they are getting t- into the 50s and 60s and 70s and are uh, presenting with the radiation uh, heart disease uh, now. I, I suspect that as uh, the radiation techniques improve 20 to 30 years from now, we're not going to see as many patients with radiation heart disease that we see uh, now. In terms of the risk factors, the young age, the presence of other cardiovascular risk factors uh, like atherosclerosis uh, or hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, et cetera, uh, are risk factors for developing of radiation heart disease. The larger dose of radiation, the radiation that is delivered on the in an AP direction, not tangential to, to the heart, and a concomitant a chemotherapy with a cardiotoxic drugs are also a risk factors for the developing of radiation heart disease. Yeah, in fact, the chemotherapy uh, would be a, you know, the, a double insult, uh, of course. And and then, of course, in these patients, I mean, the, the treatment that they've received, that radiation therapy and chemotherapy, uh, in, in most cases, has been you know, life-saving in, in those patients. And, and we often think about you know, the propensity to have second tumors you know, uh, in, in the future. But uh, cardiac disease is what we're here to talk about today. And, and as I said at the beginning, can really be a devastating uh, uh, illness. So let's just think about uh, this. I mean, pretty much every cardiac structure, I mean, you, you talked about it, you know, the, the pericardium, the myocardium, the valves, the arteries, the conduction system are, are all at risk. And then, of course, you can have concomitant lung disease and chest wall uh, inflammation and scarring, which obviously are very important to the surgeon if they come along and, and operate later. But maybe just, you know, walk us through um, the various parts of the, of the heart that are affected. So let's just start with the coronary arteries. So in patients who have radiation-induced coronary disease, how, how do you distinguish that from uh, typical garden variety atherosclerosis? And, and maybe as you answer that, what, what is the role for you know, PCI, and then particularly for surgery in terms of 
uh, arterial revascularization. So let's just focus on the coronaries first. Well, in terms of the, the coronary artery disease, the prevalence of the disease depends, uh, or the localization of the disease dependent, uh, depends on the, the way that the radiation was delivered. In general, the areas that are closer, or the arteries that are closer to the front of the chest, which if, if the radiation was delivered in an AP dire direction, is uh, the ones that are affected uh, more prominently. And therefore, the right coronary artery, the LAD, and the left main, usually they have a, a higher incidence of disease as um, in, in patients with radiation-induced uh, coronary artery disease. In terms of how to decide uh, what to do uh, or, or how to treat these patients, the decision process is, uh, is the same as in patients who don't have, uh, they have garden variety coronary artery disease and it's based on the extension of their disease, the technical aspects uh, in terms of the suitability for, for PCI, the size of the distal uh, targets, the availability of conduits, the overall presence of comorbidities and age of the patients and the life expectancy and other risk factors that we normally use to make the determination whether to proceed with a PCI versus surgery on patients with coronary artery disease. Is there a way of assessing the health of the mammary artery? I mean, obviously this is key for successful outcomes, well, long-term outcomes for surgical revascularization. Yeah, sometimes it, it is important to, that's an, a very important consideration. As we all know, the, the mammary artery is the best conduit that we have for revascularization and really provides the greatest benefit from uh, bypass surgery. And if that's so, uh, sometimes that can be affected by the radiation since it's uh, located in the uh, anterior chest wall. So it is important to, to make sure that the, the mammary artery is, is patent and we use a CT angiogram in order to determine that. The CT angiogram also provides information about the calcification of other heart structures like the, the ascending aorta and uh, help us uh, to plan the, the operation. And it's not uncommon to have calcifications in other areas of the mediastinum, particularly on patients who had Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's disease where all these lymph nodes after the radiation becomes calcified. Well, let's let's talk about the valves. Which which valves are uh, most commonly uh, involved? Again, how how do you assess that in terms of are they suitable for repair? Do they need to be replaced? They replaced your what type of uh, prosthesis? Is it going to be a bioprosthetic uh, uh, valve or mechanical? Again, the the location of the the anterior location of the valves is basically what determine the prevalence of the affection of those uh, those valves. So the aortic and the mitral valve are the most common valves affected in patients with radiation heart disease, and they have uh, this uh, particular type of uh, involvement, which uh, is the calcification of the intervalvular. A fibrosa. And that's something that we it is very commonly seen on patients with radiation heart disease and often requiring the replacement of, of both valves and even the performance of a big operation, which is called a commando operation, where we have to resect the whole continuity between the the aortic valve and the and the mitral and the general leaflet of the mitral valve and resect and reconstruct all that that makes the, the operation more than technically uh, complex. In terms of the 
repair versus replacement and the choice of the valve bioprosthesis versus mechanical valve. So normally we repair the mitral valve and to a lesser degree, we are starting now to do and more and more aortic valve repairs. These patients in general, for the aortic valve, they have a, they present in general with stenosis, with retraction of the, of the leaflets and therefore repair is not advisable. For the mitral valve, we have a, a study that extensively and, and we have demonstrated that the repair, the, we, we lose the survival advantage of repair over replacement on, of the mitral valve on patients with radiation heart disease. For patients who have no radiation heart disease, repair over replacement for degenerative mitral valve disease is associated with a survival advantage as well as freedom from reoperation. However, that survival advantage is lost on patients with radiation heart disease of the of the mitral valve. So normally we recommend to replace the mitral valve rather than repair it. And in terms of the type of valve, these patients' life expectancy is compromised because of their heart disease as well as other systemic problems that the patients may have. And if you compare the outcomes of patients who had garden variety mitral valve disease or coronary artery disease or mitral valve disease or a combination of all with patients who had the same degree of disease with induced by radiation, the long-term survival of those of the radiation patients is worse than similar disease, similar cardiac disease in patients who had no radiation. So in general, because of those that compromise long-term survival of those patients, we tend to recommend tissue valves at a younger age than what we normally do in other patients. So just in the last couple of minutes here, um, when you're faced with a patient you know, who needs surgical revascularization, uh, valve replacement, sometimes this may need to be done concomitantly. We haven't talked about uh, restrictive cardiomyopathies and you know the pericardial uh, you know, disease in, in this session in any detail. But could you maybe just summarize then what your approach is to the evaluation of these patients? How extensive is it you know, in preparing the patient and yourself and your team for, for the, uh, the surgery? Is, do you go uh, above and beyond what you typically would do for uh, valvular disease, for example, in, in a non-radiation uh, uh, induced cardiac disease? So just that preoperative workup is really what I think our listeners and viewers would like to, to hear about. Well, in, in addition to the to the standard workup that include echocardiogram and coronary angiogram, we always ask for a, a CT of the, the chest, and that uh, has several purposes. Number number one, evaluate the patency of the of the mammary artery in case that we are going to do coronary revascularization. Number two, evaluate the calcifications of the of the ascending aorta, and that allows us to determine the ability of cross clamp or cannulate the aorta. And also the, uh, the CT provides us information in terms of the calcification of the pericardium or other uh, mediastinal structures. We also, on the, on the echocardiogram, we wanna pay particular attention to any evidence of restrictive cardiomyopathy, and more importantly, to any evidence of constricted cardiomyopathy. And it's not unusual that on patients with, who had previous radiation, and even if they don't have evidence of constriction at the time of the, of the surgery, 
we uh, normally do at least a, an anterior pericardiectomy to prevent constrictions uh, down the road. Because one of the one is not uncommon that after surgery, these patients will over time develop a constrictive pericarditis and, and the reoperations on patients with pre previous radiation heart disease and previous cardiac surgery are uh, really uh, are probably the highest risk operations that we do. What, what's your threshold for doing you know, so-called you know, prophylactic uh, pericardiectomy in, in terms of a full pericardiectomy in, in patients who may not have any obvious overt signs of uh, constrictive pericarditis at the time of surgery? We, we don't do the, the full uh, radical pericardiectomy that we do on patients who had constricted pericarditis prophylactically, but we do the anterior pericardiectomy where we remove the, the anterior pericardium from phrenic to phrenic. And we believe that prevents the development of constricting, constricted pericarditis in the future. And then finally, uh, one, uh, you know, when we think about this disease, I mean, it obviously affects can affect all the structures of the heart and the surrounding organs. I mean, the, the, the lungs and, uh, and, and the chest wall. And you've already emphasized you know, the, uh, the risks of your know, reoperation. In, in such a patient who may be facing the prospect of your reoperation or you know, progression of disease you know, that only manifests itself after surgery, maybe you know, a few years after surgery, is transplantation uh, ever an option in, in these patients, assuming that you know, they're, they're in an appropriate age range? Yes, tra transplantation is a good solution, particularly for those patients who had previous uh, operations and, and they have developed now restrictive uh, cardiomyopathy uh, or very substantial valve disease that they have no options for, or coronary artery disease, and they have no options for conventional, conventional treatment. Yes. So one, uh, thank you so much, uh, you know, for sharing your knowledge and experience in in what we've described as a very devastating, uh, you know, cardiac condition uh, that, uh, as we said, you know, may also involve the lungs and the hostile chest. So uh, I'm, I'm sure our viewers and listeners have really gained a lot from uh, listening to you today. So uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Malcolm, and thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.